the corner, corner 12 Street Vine. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and a special good afternoon for Mother's Day, which is tomorrow, posthumously, and without the female, the woman is very protective. When you go out, even the other species of animals, it's the female that people keep going, keep alive, and we should do the same thing. We have a great show for you. My name is M.C. Richardson, Chairman, CEO, Founder of United Minority Media Association, and also the moderator and the executive producer of Guess Who's Coming to Kansas City. And we have a Mr. Alan Gray, who has a tremendous show in store for you. Now, you can get on that show by going to FergusonUSAHotTalkRadio.com. We also on Voice to. We're also on Facebook, we're also on the smartphone, the iPhone, and also in the archive so you can retrieve any show. So let's take it away, Mr. Gray. We have Mr. Gray on the line? No, I don't. Are you with, uh, do you have Mr. Ira Folks on the line? went over the air so okay was that on air that was on the air we're just waiting on uh, your your guests i guess okay uh mr folks do we have miss allen gray and the rest of the petition participants to be on the show today ladies and gentlemen this is a beautiful day here in kansas city and i would uh suspect that the same thing is occurring in Ferguson and St. Louis. So it gives the people the opportunity to go out and get their Mother Day's card, their chocolate, their roses, and just get perfect plans for tomorrow. Are we ready to go? Mr. Gray? I am Steve. How are you doing? I just gave... Um, a gracious and beautiful opening, and we want you to contend with. What's going on, Mr. Gray, on today's show? Well, I'm glad to be here, and, and thank you very much. I, it's a, indeed a pleasure. This is my first uh, opportunity. Do we have you? Uh-oh. And I'm trying to work through the technology a little bit. Okay. So, uh, who do we have on the line here? 
Who are the guests that we have on the line for Mr. Gray? Yeah, they have Kelvin. All right. Well, uh, Kelvin, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Good to hear everybody and good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice, too. Well, we're glad you could join us. Uh, we are going to be talking today uh, about uh, economic development at 18th and Vine, uh, economic development in Kansas City. Uh, and also, uh, we're going to uh, hear about uh, some of the cultural happenings with uh, uh, at the Black Archives. So, uh, uh, Kelvin, why don't we uh, uh, start with you? Uh, tell us about what you're doing there at 18th and Vine, about, uh, and give us a little background. I, I know we need another show to, to, to uh, talk about all of what you've done uh, in, in the state and around the, around the country, but uh, tell us what your latest adventures are. So, thank you, Mr. Gray. Appreciate everybody on the show and having an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, what I would call the pride and joy of Kansas City, 18th and Vine. Um, 18th and Vine is an opportunity for me as a former city councilman representing the 5th District in 1997. When then Emmanuel Cleaver was mayor, we actually cut the ribbon and walked the red carpet and opened 18th and Vine up for its second renaissance. So as a young man and as a city councilman more than 22 years ago, um, I can tell you that uh, the joy that I have now after coming off of the 18th and Vine Policy Development Committee uh, put there by former um, Mayor uh, Sly James as an appointee, um, I've been working for the past three, four years to find the capital to raise four projects and economic development and development projects in the 18th and Vine area. And so right now, as I look at things, including your project, there's probably more than $100 million of new investment uh, that will be coming in the area, and I hope that that will uh, come to fruition over the next 48 uh, months or so. Um, we're locked, we're loaded, uh, we have the Developers, we have the capital. Uh, we are getting mutual cooperation from the city, and so we're going to build the density. We're going to bring more shops and more retail in. Uh, hopefully, there will be more opportunities for commercial <coughs> and small business, and particularly black and minority business. Um, and so, I'm excited about what the future holds uh, because if we were talking about today, we'd have a different show. We need to be talking about what's going to take place. 18th and Vine tomorrow, because I think the community deserves uh, so much more, and I think we're going to bring in that. Well, excellent, excellent. Well, well, tell me, uh, Kelvin, what has been your general philosophy on economic development? I think this is going to be an exciting project for 18th and Vine, uh, but as you approach a project of this nature, uh, what are the things that you look for? Well, let me just say the following. I have been a former director of economic development for the state of Missouri. Uh, the first African-American to hold that title, the only African-American to ever have that title. And so when I look at economic development, I've been a practitioner, I've been a technician, I've been a public policy person, all with respect to economic development. There are times I'm very schizophrenic when it comes to economic development because I see it in two ways. I see the economic development that takes place uh, in the wider community, and uh, I also see economic development that takes place in our African-American community, and it's very, very different. Just like I say it's very different in terms of how you approach economic development in Kansas City versus how you approach economic development in St. Louis, because the incentives are different and the way you do things are different. So getting to your question, uh, Mr. Gray, 
uh, what I would tell you as an overall philosophy, we have to be able to do the same things on the economic development front that you will find in any of the other districts uh, in Kansas City. If you know Kansas City when I make that statement, I'm talking about the plaza, I'm talking about Zona Rosa, I talk about, you know, Ward Parkway, I talk about Westport, and I talk about the power and light district. Every one of those districts has a sense of private investment and private development that carries those districts. 18th and Vine for the last 20, 25 years has basically been a government-driven only kind of district. You can't do economic development by just doing one thing and just having government. So my overall philosophy was we've got to raise private investment, we've got to bring more capital into 18th and Vine, and then we use the incentives that have been placed there um, that everybody else uses. And if we have that capacity, grow that capacity, get the community excited and do some of the things that everybody else does, we will be successful. So from a philosophical standpoint, we have to continue to move forward uh, and do the very things that everybody else does, and we have to have our cultural competency at the very top of that. Uh, Mr. Simmons, M.C. Richardson with the United Minority Media Associate. How are you doing, Kelvin? Mr. Richardson, I'm doing great. It's great to hear your voice. Okay. In the economic, uh, proposed economic development and bringing people back to 18th and Vine and treating like the other parts of the city, uh, we've had some problems with homicides on 18th and Vine. They have said they're going to get together with security, but we as people have to do something to help deter crime and murders as much as possible. What is the solution as part of your economic development? I know you got this figured in. Knowing you, I know you got this figured in, but maybe our people out there don't know, and they want to know how they can help. So one of the things that I have been advocating <clears throat> government to do with respect to 18th and Vine is create a super tip in that district to create a CID, which is a community improvement district, um, and to also make us avail ourselves of all the incentives uh, that are allowable with respect to 18th and Vine, because today very little is taking place there. Now, let me give you an example. A CID, which is a community improvement district, allows you to tax the revenues within inside that district so that you can pay for beautification, landscaping, lighting, security, 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 security. I was at 18th and Vine last night for First Friday. I stayed there a couple of hours. I make sure I go and patronize our businesses there. The security presence was much greater. But private development is responsible for that security. So the more businesses that we are able to create at 18th and Vine and our ability to have a CIT there would allow us to do the very thing that we're talking about right now. 18th and Vine needs to be lit up dark at night. 18th and Vine needs to have more security, not just the police, even though it should be required to do their job. We've got to have a little bit more. That's why I say government who can't tax themselves doesn't have the resources to be at 18th and Vine like the private community can. And that's one of the big issues that we're looking at. Let me ask you well, this. Uh, okay. In, in Let me ask you this, Kelvin. Uh, recently on the news, we got X amount of, in the hundreds 
a policeman resigning or retiring, but that will leave a, a dangerous gap for 18th and Vine. What do you think should happen? And it's very difficult, even when we used to recruit to get minorities living in that area. A lot of, we live in Kansas City. A lot of them are kind of hesitant because some of their friends or family members have criminal records and they didn't want to get involved. So that left a lap for us to get adequate protection in our community. Well, you know, I'm going to go back to days of old in the 1930s, and if we really want to go back uh, as far as we can go back to the Pendergast issues, there used to be a time when we protected ourselves at 18th and Vine with our own officers. And so if you go back in the history and you chronicle the history of 18th and Vine, you know, we had our own black officers that were there because they were a part of the community, they lived in our community, they were a part of the fabric of our community. We had respect for them in our community. So I'm going to go back and be a little old school. If we can't get our police officers, and particularly our black police officers, to patrol 18th and Vine, then we have to have a security force, a private security force, that will have the same level of responsibility. That's a little bit of what I saw last night, but I think we can uh, do a little bit more. And to your specific question, Mr. Richardson, I hope we continue continue, continue to recruit, recruit, recruit. We need more officers of color on the force. They make a difference. And even though we're in difficult times, I still say officers of color will make a bigger difference than if we don't have it. Thank you. And I'm going to yield back to Mr. Alan Gray. He was ready to say something, and I don't want him to, but you are listening to Guess Who's Coming to Kansas City, uh, MC Richardson, a moderator, as well as uh, United Minority Media Associates, a parent organization, and we are recruiting people. So, Alan, I, I got you a little time to rehearse, so would you proceed? Oh, thank you, SC. Mm-hmm. Well, Kelvin, I want to ask you another question. Uh, certainly, uh, your project is going to have an impact uh, overall with 18th and Vine. Uh, how important is, is it for projects and, uh, and like yours to uh, create that synergy that we talk about that's going to attract not only uh, local community audiences, but uh, uh, tours. You know, Kansas City is known as a, uh, as a jazz city. And uh, so if I'm, I'm coming in from New York or if I'm coming in from Spain, uh, what are the types of things that I should look for and, and, and hope to see when I, when I get to 18th and Vine? So you should look for, in the next 36 to 48 months, you should look for at least structures and buildings that will replace the blight and nothing. And so when you basically stand on the corner of 18th and Vine today and you look to your west, there is almost nothing that you see. If you stand on that same corner and you look to the south, you see dilapidated buildings, you see facades, but there's nothing to see. And so we must bring 18th and Vine back by bringing actual development structures that will house our commercial, our retail, and future residents, so that when you are coming to 18th and Vine as a tourist, by the way, if you go and you Google Kansas City, and within your first five Google searches, if you don't find 18th and Vine, I'd be surprised. That's how important 18th and Vine is to Kansas City and what Kansas City is. So it's a jewel for us, but we've got to put development 
things. We've got to create density. We have to make sure there's parking for people to come and reside. All those other districts that I named earlier, every one of them has a structured vertical parking. 18th and Vine is the only one that does not. And when it basically bottlenecks, we wonder why there's a problem. City of Kansas City, we got to do better. We have to ensure that if you're going to build garages everywhere across the city, and 18th and Vine is the only one that does not have a vertical garage, that tells you about the disparity right there. So we've got to have physical structures to replace blight and nothing. Well, you know, Kel, as I look to the uh, east, uh, there's about a 65,000 square foot structure that I think needs to be developed. Would you say so? I'm 100% in support of it, and it's one of our jewels that once that comes online with everything else, man, we're hopping. And as they say, you know, going to Kansas City, Kansas City, here we come. Absolutely. Well, Kelvin, I, I want to thank you and stay on the line because we're going to have some other discussions uh, at the at the end of the hour. Uh, so, uh, but I want to uh, pull up a very special young lady, uh, someone that uh, I spent a lot of time with and not enough time, uh, particularly with my grandchildren. I want to introduce Asia Morris. If you haven't guessed, this is my daughter. Uh, Asia is the CEO and co-founder of the Greenline Initiative. And it's a social impact investment fund that uh, renovates lighted homes in the urban core while owner uh, and they secure owner financing uh, using a crowdsource fund. So I want to welcome Asia. Hi, Asia. Hi, Dad. Thank you for that introduction. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm so happy to have you on here and uh, uh, excited about the, uh, the project, the company that you've created. And uh, first of all, Tell me, uh, what gave you the idea for uh, the Green Line Initiative? Well, as you know, and I'd like your listeners to know, my husband and I, we have four children, and we choose to live on the east side of Kansas City. Finding a mixed-income neighborhood is almost all but impossible. And where we were living, it was being rapidly identified, so as we tried to find a house that fit us and our growing family, we recognize that there was an opportunity to help more of our neighbors become homeowners as well. So what we did was leverage all of our experiences in finding and renting a house because that was the most cost-effective way to do it. And we basically created a vehicle that allowed renters to turn into homeowners paying less than they did on a mortgage that they did for rent. If that makes sense. Okay. Well, uh, for those of us that may not be familiar with the term, uh, what exactly is social impact investing? Okay, I can do that. Impact investments provide capital to the social or environmental issues. In our case, the, issue, the, the social issue that we're addressing is the racial wealth gap. Um, the investments are made in the companies like mine, and the intention is that we generate measurable or beneficial social impact. So in our case, the Greenline Initiative, we directly address the racial wealth gap by turning the rent into home. Okay. Now, what are some of the reasons behind that uh, that gap, Asia? Well, I mean, systemic racism is the biggest issue that it's, it's one of the biggest issues we have that pours into everything: our health disparity, education disparity, um, generational <coughs> <coughs> So when you 
try to attack a system that's embedded in our culture, you need to be creative and finding ways to assist the most vulnerable. Um, in this case, supporting everyone, you have to pay for where you live. And Kansas City is a low cost of living community where I work on the east side in the service district. It is the eighth most vacant in the nation. We have a 37.9% home ownership rate. You put all those things together, there's a ton of opportunity to renovate homes and keep them at a price point that my neighbors can afford. And I'm super honored to be here in the presence of, of titans in economic development. Um, but what we see is we turn make things nicer on the east side is that the people who live here get displaced. And my partner, my husband, my love and I are doing everything we can to help as many people as possible take ownership of the land that they occupy through gentrification with the best. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, so uh, I guess one of the questions I've always had, uh, and that's uh, why why is creating wealth among African Americans and people of color so important in a city like Kansas City? Oh my goodness, I mean, we can say nationally, internationally, globally, locally, it's black people have been, I hate when it feels like increasing to the spine. But black people have been obsessed and denied access to resources forever. I mean, we're still being denied access to certain resources. So with those challenges in mind, how do we honor our community? You know, and so white families have on average 10 times more wealth than a black family does. What that looks like, I believe, I don't know if it's Kansas City nationally, the white families have $121,000 on average a household network. Black families are at $21,000 per capita. But those are the disparities. If you have one emergency, your whole life will be affected. There is no There is no opportunity to finance a college education. If you don't own a home, you can't really set the start of your business or spend your child's and so what I positive is while it's great that we have low income apartments and we focus on things that support those of us who are struggling the most, there is an opportunity in the market, those of us who live on the east side willingly, who need support to make that simple change because oftentimes with spending still fine they need you have to have a set credit to in our community sometimes that's really hard to get for things outside of our school. What we can do with the green line is we can order finance and we can make accommodations. Instead of looking at a credit school, we can buy it against people all the time. We can look at your rental history. We can look at how long you've been at your job. We can do things that honor who you are as a timely bill paying person and give you a leverage and mortgage. And we can do that with the community support. Because what we know, what we found is that we can't wait for the outside to come in and say, but we must do it ourselves. Okay. Now, have you, uh, uh, have you, uh, I'm assuming that you've been about creating different partnerships in the community and, and working in the community to bring this idea forward. Uh, how, how successful has that been? It's been incredibly successful. We started in Blue Hills, and I love it. Um, maternal grandparents in Blue Hills, but it's landlocked. You see in Rockford, um, because they can't go any further west, Changing the composition of the Blue Hills neighborhood. Uh, so prices in that neighborhood are rapidly escalating. It's a very clearly kept secret that the 71 is the new group where black people are being displaced at a rapid clip. 
for the community that my partner and I have created a focus on, 64127-64128. We're in this beautiful historic Oak Park right now. Um, and we're working with the neighborhood associations. We have so much opportunity and there's so much movement right now. We've also partnered to create a commercial development, um, commercial real estate development firm, local code, and we're working on a repurposed Kansas City Public School as well. So we're working with national partners, social impact investors. We're leveraging, and I've heard so many amazing terms that are very new to me because I'm learning quickly. I'm an economic development believer, but we're, we're looking at the pure tax credit, state and federal, new market tax credit, and things that people have been using to extract wealth from our community, we're going to leverage it to give back. Because with that model, we're going to be intention of community owning commercial development within 10 years of completion. Okay. Well, you know, Asia, with, with new ideas and projects like this, um, uh, in general, there, there are a lot of challenges that, that you might face to uh, just get a startup going. And, and, and I'm assuming that Greenline has had some challenges. Uh, what might, what, what are some of those challenges? Absolutely. We are in residential real estate development. The biggest challenge for, I would say, every small black business is access to resources, access to banking relationships. Those are slow to come, and, and financial red money means the fact that I live in 16 months to wait, my interest rates are higher in some cases. Knowing those sorts of things, we initially bootstrapped and used our own money. Um, my background is as an attorney, my husband's in finance. We used our own money to identify abandoned homes and completely take them down to the studs, renovate them, and sell them to the community. As we've gotten into at this, we found social investment, um, social impact investors from the West Coast who invested in us, and there's also a commercial partnership, I'm sorry, a business partnership that's underway, because right now we're at a time where people recognize there are so many implications of home ownership. Children who live in a home their parents own are more likely to graduate from high school, they have better health income, health outcomes, and their lives are just incrementally increasing in hand. And that's what we're going to do. And so while, oh, more challenges, um, the cost of lumber has tripled. And then at our price point, we try to keep the mortgages for our family between $800 to $1,200. And when lumber goes up, and like that impacts us, but the bottom line is as a social as a social investment we give back and make sure that we don't value or price our community on the market when we develop. But it's almost possible to keep it at a community-friendly price when the cost of materials has gone up so high. Those are our probably two biggest challenges. Are you, are you facing uh, much competition? I, I know that well, just recently I received a phone call from an out-of-town investor wanting to uh, know if I was wanted to sell some property. Uh, are you getting a lot of that? And, there a general strategy to our, our need for assistance on the city side or community to to uh, make sure that companies like yourself can, can thrive and have a place in the market? We would love some support or assistance from the city or whomever. There is competition because I live very near the intersection of Linwood and Ben Boulevard. 
and go to our homepage at www.frequencyfc.com. That's right about all of our programs. And listeners and people on the show, tell your people not only this Saturday, but each and every Saturday, we need to get as much listen with all this valuable and intense information that we provide. We need to have total character setting involved, and not just the people of color, but all people, because we got something here. I remember Bernard Powell used to say, "Ghetto or gold mine, the choice is yours." Let's go back to you, Mister. benefit. 
because um, um, now you, you you kind of mentioned some of the background of the archives, but uh, are there are there goals, specific goals that uh, that the community should know about uh, with respect to what the archives is trying to achieve uh, in, the, in the current and near future? Well, there are. I mean, we have uh, a fixed exhibit with our eyes no longer blind, um, taken from the Langston News poem, and that exhibit has been here in this building since uh, the archives moved from 2033 Vine into this beautiful, beautiful stable building. Uh, one of the goals for that area is to make it interactive. Uh, we're in a time and place where uh, folks, especially young people, need that interactivity. So um, we're going about trying to create ways and raise money to make that happen. We partnered with the Equal Justice Initiative, and they are the folks in Alabama who established the lynching museum. There, we are the only site outside of Alabama that has one of those exhibitions. Uh, so we have built a beautiful exhibit. We have a, a wall mural that was done by Charles Swaby, a local African-American artist. Uh, he showed up with a portfolio to show me his work when he uh, saw or noticed that we were looking for this. And I said, Charlie, you're 20. Why are you doing paintings about lynchings? And we had an amazing discussion about how even it affects young people. So when I hear uh, Asia and other people talk about how racism is not a health issue, we see that. And that's one of the things that we want to combat with. We have um, Aunt Lucy's cabin, Horace Peterson and some of his friends uh, discovered that there was a house where an enslaved woman had lived. And the family said, yeah, you can have it. So they took it apart and put it on the back of trucks. They brought it down here and reconstructed it at the old firehouse. And now we have it here. And our archivist, uh, Deborah Barker, and I looked at it several times and we said, this looks like some men put it together. Uh, there was nothing that looked like it was a woman's house, and we had things that belonged to her. So we went through the archives and pulled out her wash basin and her curtains and other things that belonged to her. And so now we can see what Lucy's house looked like. I have pictures of her family in it. Uh, I had a man show up one day and said, tell me that women's professional basketball started in Kansas City. And I said, you know what, I'm running a museum here. I just can't take your word for it. But you have to bring me proof. And he did. He had boxes of proof. Yeah. And among that was a letter from the NBA commissioner saying, oh, wonderful, what a wonderful idea. Let us know how that progresses. You and know, if I, could inter if I could interject now, uh, Dr. William, uh, okay. that house it used to be up on Blue Ridge for about 66. Is that down and located where you are now? No, this this house came from Trenton, Missouri. Okay, well they had one out on Blue okay. Ridge. Are you there familiar is, with that? That is that is still there. Okay. Yeah, across. Uh, yeah, that that space is still there. And the other, uh, excuse me, the other one, the professional basketball team, was the Kansas City Mustangs, but they didn't have the necessary capital to continue until the NBA adopted the WNBA. But all that happened, a lot of people from Kansas City participated in that league. I used to broadcast some of their shows. Yeah. Well, that's not quite true. There were eight teams in that league, and it was started by a local man, uh, 
Lightning Mitchell from Kansas City. And so uh, we did have a soft opening of the exhibit uh, pre-COVID, and we had players and owners uh, from all over the country come here for that. Um, most of the games were held in the Midwest because they couldn't afford airfare, but uh, there were eight, com- eight uh, teams from all over. Were you familiar with the Kansas City Mustangs? The Kansas City Mustangs are one of the eight teams that were Okay, uh, okay then. Proceed. <laughs> well, 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 Doctor, you, uh, you bring a, a good point in terms of the, the process that the, uh, in this case, the uh, Women's uh, Professional Basketball League uh, uh, started in those origins. And I was talking to uh, Lonnie Bunch with Smithsonian, uh, who had come to visit the, uh, uh, the archives at one point, and, and he mentioned the importance of communities accessing uh, organizations like the Black Archives and, and, and the thousands of documents that they receive in Washington that, um, uh, more rightfully so, should be in museums like the Black Archives. Uh, is there a process for the community to uh, uh, bring in uh, uh, collections and, and things that they're finding in their ads, you know, uh, horse people should just go house to house and, 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 and collect these items and put them in its car. That's how the, right. the humble beginnings of the Black Archives. Yeah, you go house to house whether anybody lives there or not. <laughs> <laughs> collection was left over. Every day, uh, almost, we have people bring things to us. Uh, back I'd been in this job about a week when there was a notice to Go renew my post office box. Uh, so I took a handful of keys and we noticed and went down there. And the woman showed me a pink slip. She said, That means you have some boxes in the locker. There were two massive boxes in the locker. A man had sent them from um, uh, Rhode Island. And he said his neighbor died and her daughters were throwing things out on the curb. So he went to sort through them. And there were amazing documents in there. Uh, and he said, he woke up one day and said they belong at the Black Archives in Kansas City. So he sent them to us, uh, and I thanked him, and I was truly amazed as I went through those boxes, things that were going to end up in a landfill. Uh, I had a friend who was moving to uh, Texas to help her daughter, and she came in with some big 78s. And almost every day, another friend of mine who worked at the Kansas City Star is downsizing, and he brought us some important papers, those that um, were chronicling uh, African-American life, and he sorted through them and brought them to us. So people are are bringing those to us. We don't store things except for the Albanian papers. So anything that they bring here belongs to the archives. And uh, they sign a release saying that they know that. So we go through them, we uh, scan them, we include them in our database, and, and we also make them available for researchers. And we've had researchers from all over the world, from Sweden and England and South Africa and China and then all across the United States. People see us as that research space. And that's what we're, what we're um, reaching for. We want people to know that we have those vestiges of African-American life here at the Black Archives, and they're accessible to everybody. everybody. One of the things that we're doing now is opening a genealogy center. Uh, we were gifted with some computers from Country Club Bank, 
We partnered with Midwest Genealogy, who told us what software to buy. Uh, so we have that software. We're installing it uh, last week and next week. And um, so almost routinely people call and say, can you help me find? Uh, and they're talking about a relative. And I have to say, no, I'm sorry. We don't have the staff to do that or the equipment. But now we, we do have a way for them to come in, and we will teach them how to use the software uh, so that they can do those searches. Uh, knowing who you are and where you came from and what your family structure is is important to all people, and especially when you're talking about mental health issues. And that's one of the things that the Black Archives does. We provide that for people. Well, you know, it sounds to me like uh, that scene up uh, uh, an invite to Dr. Henry uh, Lewis Gates to, to come and, and speak at our next lunch next luncheon. Does that sound possible? That sounds possible. If you got $35,000, he'll be more than happy to come here. Oh, <laughs> maybe, uh, some, maybe if he has a friend that he would do a favor for, that would be wonderful. All right. Also, other people who do um, uh, historical research and genealogy research, they can speak well to our community. But we would love to have him all right. I was a fellow at Harvard's W.B. Du Bois Institute once, and that was an honor to get to work with those African-American scholars. Well, we're certainly uh, blessed and, and fortunate to have, have you uh, in Kansas City, and specifically at the uh, Black Archives, because you bring a wealth of experience and, and a tremendous vision uh, for, the, uh, for the Black Archives. And uh, along that line, uh, to see what is why is it important for us to have a black archives well because those who don't know their history are doomed to our basic line and also we cannot instill in our young people the sense of racial pride if they don't have it one of the books that i'm working on now is a mother steel s-t-i-l-l Voices of Resistance. In my 28 years of teaching African American studies, every single semester, somebody would say, I wouldn't have taken that if I did a study. And I, my response is always, yes, you would have. You would have done what you had to do to survive, because if they kill you, they win. But also, what makes you think they just took it? And I think that we need to know that there were forms of resistance, that our people have never just laid down and let people walk over them. And when we see this cowardice and all of these murders, that is not typical of our folk. So we need to train people, we need to teach them, we need to show them that there is pride in blackness, uh, and there is a power in blackness, and we have to share that. And that's one of the things that the archives focuses on, uh, that pride in racial blackness. When I have kids come here, and pre-COVID we had lots of field trips, I would stop them in the lobby and say, what's your favorite James Brown song? And they okay. would say, I've got a brand new bag. And I would say, no, what's my favorite James Brown song? And they would say, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And I would make them say that three times before we go into the exhibit because I want them to have that feeling of pride as they see those people uh, and those institutions that went to build black people. And I'm a Kansas City native. I'm the third generation born in the neighborhood, let alone in Kansas City. And there's a pride here, and we need to share that. If you just tune in, you're listening to Guess Who's Coming in Kansas City. 
M.C. Richardson with the United Minority Media Association, and the people that we've been very fortunate to have as guests, they really bring you some news you might not hear any place else. But it's also in the archives. They have the archives, as black archives with Horace Peterson, and a lot of them was involved in starting it. And also, we have other people in genealogy, like uh, Gates, I think he uh, had a, a big funding thing. And doctor, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but Ford uh, provided him a lot of capital to do what he's doing. And he's here not only in February, but other times during the year. And people, listen. Take that, write down how you can reach these people because it's a lesson not only good for you, but for our children and our future generation. I've got one, one more question, uh, Dr. Steve. You know, we've been in the middle of a, a pan, pandemic, and uh, that's had a particular impact on nonprofits uh, and, and, and museums, of course, because uh, we uh, look for people to come through the museum. And, and I think right now uh, the doors are kind of almost say boarded, but uh, we're not as accessible. Uh, what what do you see for the future for the Black Archives uh, coming out of the pandemic and, and for museums uh, in general? Well, it was. It has been a, a terrible uh, strike not to have been open and to have to have physically closed down the buildings for COVID. But we're open. We are uh, conscious. Uh, very much a COVID restriction. We had an amazing program here just today. Um, a Mother's Day event with vendors and a fashion show and a uh, speakeasy. Uh, people are coming out. We still um, expect them to uh, practice COVID uh, precautions. But uh, before, we just had no income. And as a nonprofit, we depend on people to come in and to make us donations. Uh, so, so now it's good. I'm excited. It's good to see people back. Our young people's group is really busy uh, and they're back and doing work. So there's a lot of action and activity and it's all positive here. We only deal in positive, productive, progressive uh, actions that are the Black Archives. Well, fantastic. Well, we've got, we've got a few minutes left and I want to kind of bring the... Uh, our panel or our guests back uh, for uh, just a little round robin of, of, of conversation. And uh, so is everybody there? Uh, Asia, Kelvin, still in there? I am. Yes, I am. All right. Well, I'd just like to get from each of you, uh, you know, we're, this, this program is guests who's coming to Kansas City, and I'm glad that each of you are in Kansas City. Uh, but what what is your vision for Kansas City. You know, vision is always important in direction. And uh, what are the types of things that you believe that we need in our community uh, so that we can continue to uh, maintain uh, individuals like yourselves and Dr. Carmel? She's she's been she's a third generation uh, in Kansas City. And and uh, Kelvin, I, I I guess we can let everybody in. Now. Kelvin and I grew up together uh, almost on the same block, so we we've got some history there. So. Uh, this, this is like family week. But however, uh, as, as we look at, look, look out, what, what does Kansas City need, need to do to, to be successful? And I'll start with, uh, Kelvin, I'll start with you. Very good. Um, those people that know me may also know that uh, I am a big sports junkie. 
And so they tell you in public life, please do not use sports analogies because it's never good for you. But I'm going to ask each and every one of you to please pray with me because I am recovering sports junkie. And so what I'm getting ready to say to you is that I believe that Kansas City has to be on the offense and they have to be on the defense. When you're on the offense, we have to be progressive enough to understand, uh, to not only um, read our history and know our history, uh, but if we don't read it and we don't know it, we're bound to repeat it, that which is not very pleasant. What do I mean by that? If we don't if we don't become very vigilant, uh, and I believe it was Miss Asia who talked about this a little bit earlier, she alluded to, if we don't be, if, if we're not vigilant uh, about how we are defending, um, gingifying our communities, then our communities will not resemble anything that we know of it, uh, particularly in our African-American community. I'll give this to you so I don't uh, monopolize the time. There was a point in time when truce used to be our dividing line. It was our dividing line historically. It was our dividing line politically. It was our dividing line economically. And there was a number of years that everybody thought truce was the worst thing that you could ever come across. If you came to the east side of truce, you know, it was the very worst thing that could be possible. I fast forward today and I say to you, go from 24th and truce to 31st and truce and look and see what has happened. The The reason I bring that up is that if we're not talking about the potential gentrification of our community, it continues to come east. And so when I think about 18th and Vine, I think that, you know, what we're trying to do right now is proactive and progressive, but we're also defending at 18th and Vine. Because if we continue to allow murders and robberies and all of those things to take place, what that does is it brings down the property value. As it brings down the property values, it allows those properties to be sold for next to nothing. Mm-hmm. And the people that are usually first in to buy those properties don't look like the people like the people on this phone. And so that's the defense that we have to play in order to make something happen at 18th and Vine so we're not bringing property values down and make it applicable to gentrification. Because it will happen if we're not vigilant. So I think Kansas City, especially as it relates to the black community, we need to be offensive and we need to be defensive in our approach to ensure that what is taking place in the future is not simply repeating some of the past that isn't the good past that we want to talk about, but it brings a bright future for tomorrow. Be on the offense, Kansas City. Be on the defense, Kansas City. Good point. Asia. Yes, Asia, I agree. I'm not getting sports ball terminology just because I want it. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I feel like the Green Line Initiative is on the defensive. We are trying to slow down, save off people coming into our community and getting these reasonably priced homes and, and moving us out. But I also wholeheartedly agree with the offensive. We need to, in Kansas City, there is a ton of billions of dollars have been extracted from the east side. A lot of these um, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here because I'm very passionate, guys. But a lot of these big projects go to big developers and the big money goes west of truth and we never see it again. And then the government subsidizes it and the land is no longer ours. So instead of talking about it and wringing our hands, why don't we proactively rally our philanthropic groups, rally our upper middle class blacks, rally the people who have resources and access to them to actively 
take a laser-like focus on the most vulnerable community that we have. 25% of black children live in poverty. We can't rise up as a community if we have 25% of black children living in poverty. So we talk a lot. I have friends of all different creeds and colors. Instead of talking about it, I'm now pushing them to do something about it. Invest in me, invest in this, invest in something that actually moves the ball forward. And here we are with the sports ball announcement. But but I agree. <laughs> we can work from both sides. Oh, excellent, uh, Doctor Doctor C. You know, uh, I love sports. I don't have any problem with sports analogy, and I see the Black Archives as a quarterback because we are the linchpin for the 18th and Vine area. Everything yeah. that happens here actually connects here at the Black Archives, and we're proud to have that role, and we're very responsible. Uh, when we think about what it is that we contribute and how we work in this neighborhood. And I am just honored to be on this panel uh, with this group. God, you guys are smart. Uh, and you help us, you know, with things that we don't understand. Uh, we have a whole community out there of people who do understand and who are so willing to include us and to uh, educate us on what it means. And then we see our role as a bigger role in working with the community to make sure that they understand what's going on. So thank you, Alan, for including Well, it's about that time again, and as we say, Alan, and uh, the people, and I'll just give my little spiel, well, the people inform our listeners how they can be reached and if they can use volunteers. Would you do that quickly, please? Thank you. Um, with the Green Line Initiative, our website is www.thegreenlineinitiative.com. You can go and subscribe there for newsletters where we share about our projects and the communities that we're working in. Otherwise, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram for regular updates. Okay, I'll go next. Um, Carmeletta Williams, you can get us at blackarchives.org, and we also have a Facebook page that is uh, constantly updated and very active, and you can write me, Dr. Kern, at blackarchives.org. And you can come in and visit, we're at 1722 East 17th Paris, uh, Missouri, we're right behind the Negro Lakes Baseball Museum and the PGM. Kelvin? Yes, so Kelvin Simmons, I'm going to give it to you personal because I tell everybody that, hey, you can contact me personally. I've had the same phone number for about 25 years. I got it when I was on the city council. I never changed it. I'm at 816-213-4460. Again, 816-213-4460. My uh, email address is going to also be old school, too. Uh, That is Kelvin, C-O-L. AOL.com. Anybody that has an AOL still around, God bless you. That's just golden age, but I believe in it. Uh, uh, Mr. Uh, um, uh, host for today, uh, how can you be reached? Well, uh, Dallin Gray, I'm partnered with Joe Brothers Art Center of LLC in Kansas City. Uh, my number is 816-812-0119 and my email address is a gray that's g-r-a-y d as in david the number two at gmail.com thank you my name is mc richardson with the united minority media association also with guests who's coming to kansas we got two interesting projects that happened back in k 
Ketcha, Arkansas, back in 1923. And we got two excellent shows on April the 3rd and April the 24th, where the people want to go back and recapture their land like the, the Bruce family did outside of L.A., where the Ku Klux Klan sold their land. And now they've been watered, I think, $97 million. But I need personally want each and one of you to contact me. Uh, my number is 816-822-8866. And my email is down because my computer. So our, we cannot get off the air without you saying something. Oh, yes. First of all, I'd like to invite everybody on this call. The National Black Chamber of Commerce, <coughs> excuse me, has partnered with the Wall Street Journal. And this week we have a uh, free seminar for everybody from finance and with some of the richest people in the country being a part of this, this week. Seminar on the 11th uh, through, the, uh, through the 13th. Go to our website at com. You can see on the website there how you can use the invitation for your choice. This is the Wall Street Journal called the United Spectrum Conference and said we're going to be your partners. And we are, we are making a bill of money and financing to all black people that want to find some money. They need money, we can find money for you. Mr. Scott Owens? Yes, sir. Well, uh, you can reach... Uh, for an engineer. Now, you got to tell us how the engineer to reach you and everything. <laughs> you can reach me at uh, my email, voiceovers, number four, letter U, at gmail.com. You can always reach me on the FergusonUSAHotTalkRadio.com website. And uh, if you need to call me, uh, get me through Mr. Richardson. Ladies and gentlemen, another excellent show. And tell your friends they can retrieve this show uh once again uh mr our folks how can they retrieve this show they go to ferguson usa radio ferguson usa hot talk radio.com go to our uh home page and navigate over to the podcast library and if you will return to today's show probably another hour from there you be able to thanks everybody and same time to tune in tell your friends to not only go on the internet but the voice uh, to YouTube, I'm sorry, the Facebook, by going to FergusonUSAHotTalkRadio.com and also on Smart 